0: Welcome to the business of business podcast. In episode one, we talked to Chris Doxey. She is a procure to pay financial close and eternal controls expert. Chris has published two books, the fast close toolkit and the eternal controls toolkit. Both are published through Wiley and are available now. Enjoy.
1: Well, welcome everybody. Thank you very much for taking the time to join me today. My name is Lewis Hopkins, and I'm the host for these podcasts, The Business of Business. In 1970, Milton Friedman stated that the only social responsibility of business was to maximise profits. With profit, everything else could be achieved, including social responsibility, charitable giving, and all the other desires of the organisation. I think today, though, we could probably better argue that the business of business is to have a broader set of goals. Can we only be socially responsible if we are making a profit or can we do both at the same time? And what really is a social responsibility? For me, it's not just the charitable work that an organization does, but how it benefits those externally and internally. How does it treat everyone? What is the culture that it creates? So I want to focus on the actual business of business. How We are working to achieve the objectives of our organizations in finance, HR, supply chain, and more. How is technology impacting our workplace, both in terms of progress, but also how it affects us as human beings? What are the risks, legislation, and compliance issues that have to be tackled? We have the upcoming uh, Consumer uh, Protection Act uh, in California. Uh, How are these uh, uh, pieces of legislation going to affect us going forward? What makes for a good culture? What makes for a bad culture? I have a lot of questions, and so I made this as much for me as for anyone else listening. Now, I take in a ton of content on entrepreneurialism. Uh, There's loads of it out there. But what about the day-to-day issues in work, in our work, in our 40-hour work weeks? What about those who have no desire to be an entrepreneur but want to be the best they can be in HR, finance, and so on? And so for me, the business of business is all of this, and the profit of this podcast is in the learning. My first guest is Chris Doxey, and despite this being the first podcast, we're actually going to start at the end, financial close. It's December 2019, and for many organizations, you'll be looking to close the books. And We have some other things that we're going to go over, procure to pay, internal controls, Chris has some great insights and uh, uh, some fantastic experience in the field. And so, with that, I hope you enjoy this. Thank you much again for listening. Let's get on with the show.
0: My name is Chris Doxy, and I have a consulting company called Doxy Incorporated. And the company started in uh, 2012, and we focus on internal controls, uh, segregation of duties, delegation of authority, and really using my experience at Hewlett Packard, about 25 years at uh, all the legacy companies that became Hewlett Packard as it is today, which include Compaq and Digital Equipment Corporation. I have experience as a controller, head of financial architecture at Compaq, and was really instrumental in all the work that was done to merge um, all the companies. I spent um, a couple years at WorldCom MCI getting them ready for Sarbanes-Oxley and implementing internal control programs. I've written a couple books. One is called the Internal Controls Toolkit which was published in July of 2019 and the Fast Close Toolkit is actually being shipped um, as we speak and I'm actually going to be producing another uh, series of toolkits next year one called the Controllers Toolkit and one focused on Accounts Payable.
1: Cool, okay. Um, yeah, there's quite a few things we're gonna to touch on um, around the books and so on, but um, from your LinkedIn profile, you have a lot of um, acronyms after your name. Um, I just oh, want to yeah. a couple. <laughs> um, you, you're certified in Control self assessment certified internal controls auditor, um, but you're also, on the board with the Institute for Internal Controls, right? So what what does that entail?
0: Yeah, that um, program or that organization is looking to set up some educational content and a resource center for internal controls professionals to to go to. And they actually are looking at revamping their certification program. And again, the focus is on new trends and internal controls, particularly with automation of processes. And um, I've been actually on the board for quite a few years. And um, what we really do is is focus on how we can increase our membership. And as I said, increase the quality of the resources that the Institute of Internal Controls offers. It is a worldwide organization and I believe there's uh, probably about 10,000 or so members.
1: Okay, okay. Um, and so um, you're also, um, you've also also been involved with, with something called the Exchange Summit, um, which from what I understand is around procure to pay, is that correct?
0: Uh, yes, it is. The focus of the Exchange Summit is really on the, e- the best practices for e-invoicing and it's a worldwide organization again, and what they have are a couple of uh, key conferences each year, and they bring people together from all over the world to talk about trends in electronic invoicing, and they're starting to look at the entire procure to pay cycle, as, as you mentioned, to include not only the procurement side, but actually the accounts payable and payment side. And it's very interesting because the attendees and members of the organization and again the attendees of the conferences get to see what other countries are doing and right. it makes things a lot easier because this is a mandate in many countries outside the U.S. and the U.S. is kind of a laggard with e-invoicing and but there are some things happening within the next couple of years hopefully we'll come up with some standards for allowing companies to send and receive electronic invoices so it's, it's very interesting it's been an evolution
1: yeah and it's interesting you said that the u.s lags behind because this, you see so much about um certainly um you know payment automation and that kind of thing so it, 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 you would say that then it's it's not a particularly mature process here in the u.s then
0: I, I think the major problem is that there are several definitions of electronic invoicing. As an example, some companies think because they're sending an invoice with an email, it could be a PDF file or even an Excel spreadsheet that that is equal to an electronic invoice. Yeah. So that's probably, you know, one of the, the key things is a lack of understanding. And again, there are many different conventions for, uh, actually, sending invoices. We have a lot of solution providers that accommodate that process, and many uh, large companies are have been using e-invoicing with EDI processes for years, yeah. and that connects directly to their ERP system. But the problem with all these kind of ad hoc solutions is you have a different uh, format. And it makes it kind of difficult for the receiver of the invoice to process all these invoices and make things, it makes things very complex. Okay. So I think, you know, in an answer, the short answer is the definitions need to be cleaned up quite a bit. And also the, uh, the file layouts and the conventions and tools that are going to be used across the board for e-invoicing really need to be defined. Yeah. And probably the third problem is having, uh, consistent methodology for governance where e-invoicing is accepted um, across the board and having uh, possibly a large, you know, company um, uh, as a sponsor and as a, as a um, uh, I guess, a user of e-invoicing and, and, you know, kind of helping to lead the charge across the board.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I, I, I'd always figured that it was a lot more mature here but so so um the exchange summit then what you're what you're trying to do is kind of produce a, um, a standard right
0: yes we're, we're trying to come up with a standard and what's helpful you know as i mentioned uh, many countries are utilizing e-invoicing and there were some uh governance bodies like uh pepl in the u in actually in europe and you know pretty much across all of europe that has been working with the U.S. to share their conventions and, and their governance. Yeah. And um, it's starting to, e-invoices is starting to be a common practice also in Asia. So Europe, Asia, Latin America are, are really uh, quite familiar with e-invoicing. And there's a report that's prepared every, uh, I think it's every year or so by an individual name. Bruno Koch and he's based in, in Germany and he takes a look at kind of the landscape of where we are yeah. across the world with e-invoicing and he's he's also on the advisory board for the exchange summit and a key speaker at um, some of our sessions. Okay. Yeah, so he kind of takes a look at where we are with e-invoicing and where I kind of get involved in, you know, looking at my background with internal controls. If we're automating transactions like invoices, like payments. It's reducing the risk and it's really facilitating good risk management processes because we have less uh, chances of, of duplicate payment, either intentional or erroneous. And we're looking at fewer people being involved with less chance for modifying invoices and possibly diverting an invoice to a phony supplier and, and things like that. So that that's really kind of the win-win. It's yeah. certainly a cost reduction, a efficiency gain, but it's really helping the entire internal controls landscape in the P2P process.
1: Yeah. So you, because you touched on something there, which is, which is the risk and particularly around fraud, but I suppose putting fraud aside, um, you know, the, having an efficient, Procure to pay process is ultimately going to make things more efficient, right?
0: Uh, yeah, yes, it is. And you know, looking at the end to end process, I've done several presentations on digitizing the procure to pay process, starting with electronic procurement um, through e invoicing to even electronic accounting, where we're starting to actually do some self-assessments and really automate the accounting process including internal controls. And if we look at the entire procure-to-pay process, there's so many manual steps and e-invoicing is is a cog in the wheel, you know, I guess uh, as as a best way to describe it. And if you just automate or uh, implement e-invoicing, you're really not looking at the entire process. So you could have risk. And the supplier onboarding process, the supplier selection process, and when I think of procure to pay, I look at again the end to end, right through closing the books. Yeah. And the benefit with electronic P2P processes, you're going to have a good fiscal close, and your transactions are going to be very sound. And you know, again, the risk is um, with putting in a digitized process is doing it correctly and really understanding your current process and, and what needs to change. And if you automate a, a bad uh, process, you're going to end up with bad results.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's, um, that's a good point there on procure to pay. Um, it's December here, 2019. Um, you've just brought out a book on uh, the fast close toolkit. Um, mm-hmm. So as I say, we're here December. People are going to be start thinking about year end if they haven't already. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the toolkit? What? What? Why? Why did you write it? What is it trying to achieve? And and um, and what is a fast close? I suppose.
0: That, that's a great question. I'd like to, as I mentioned, share my experience um, over the years. With others because I've picked up so many different tools and techniques. It it's, um, it, it really makes a lot of sense to communicate and and, and share those those types of tools. Uh, it all started when I was heading the consolidation process at Digital Equipment Corporation, and I've always looked at um, looking at uh, processes more efficient and um, really streamlining the time it takes to close the books. And again, the process was very manual. At that time, we had 38 different general ledgers that needed to be consolidated. And we actually implemented financial management centers to streamline the consolidation points. And that was really a huge undertaking, but it resulted in taking almost uh, three days off out of the close. And um, it continued to be enhanced or the close process continued to be enhanced with new automation and uh, implementing ERPs and, and different uh, reporting tools and things like that. Yeah. Because at the time I was in, in the, um, the closing process, we just had legacy systems and it made it a lot of fun. Yeah. So the, the toolkit is really an evolution of a lot of the checklists that, that um, I've found uh, that are helpful to controllers and individuals that own the, the financial close. and, Another key, I guess, milestone and in, in why I wrote the book, I did a survey for the Institute of, of Finance and, and Management um, a few years back, and we did the survey with controllers of, of small uh, to medium-sized companies, and we looked at what are your, your key pain points, yeah. and it was very interesting because one of the, the key pain points was getting back to basics and implementing uh, some checklists and again, a lot of companies wanted, um, you know, automation, but if we looked at the top three priorities, they were checklists, they were getting a streamlined process. And, um, and then, you know, automation of course was, was one of the factors. Yeah. And I started doing a lot of webinars on this topic, uh, the internal control or the fast close, uh, process. And, um, I have actually do a lot of work with CPA Academy as well as other CPA organizations, right. and the feedback has been tremendous because they want to see all these checklists and tools. You know, we right. have them for very detailed transactions up through what the executive close needs to look like. Right. And of course, par- part of the, uh, the book includes what internal controls you should look at to basically Uh, take a peek at your operation to see how well things are connecting. And then the other part of the internal controls is a series of metrics to look at um, whether there's uh, an indicator for financial statement fraud.
1: Right. Okay. Um, We we, we talked about the maturity of procure to pay. Um, You know, closing is something that everybody has to do. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, from your experience, how... How mature are the organizations that you've worked with? Um, you know, what, what, uh, like I say, it's something they've they've got to do. But do you find that organizations are pretty efficient at closing the books, or or is it still really painful for them?
0: It's pretty painful in, in a lot of cases because there's so much um, time spent on the close because you're consolidating and gathering all your transactions. And again, if you're looking at manual processes, it's it's quite cumbersome to to make sure that you're posting transactions uh, correctly and um, efficiently. And a lot of companies, you know, quite honestly, will just wait until the last minute to realize that, oh, gee, we have to close the books this month. Yeah. And so what I recommend are doing things like uh, accruals um, estimates, and actually determining how much work you can actually move out of the, the closing crunch. How many journal entries can you automate and upload to your ERP, and not wait to the last minute to produce all those? And if you're doing work like that up front, you can actually embed workflow with approvals to make sure that the transactions. Are are um, you know reasonable, yeah. and so those are some of the things we we actually recommend. And again, part of it is make sure you document your closing process and include a lot of these checklists, which certainly are very useful to include in documentation. Yeah. Uh, the other key process uh, is to have a a post close review, and you know again if there's a bottleneck, it, it's usually going to be the same thing over and over again, yeah. and that post-close review should include your, your, again, your finance organization and also the stakeholders and business partners that impact the the process. And, um, you know, again, you're, you're gathering information about inventory from supply chain and other organizations, and you want to make sure that they understand the importance of the close and the impact they, they have upon it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So just some putting in some basics and then thinking about, okay, automation and including workflow and I, I love process analysis and if you really think about it every process in, in finance and even outside finance in and in a company has a has a, a very uh, distinct process flow yeah and even you know getting some of my clients to think about all the steps in their closing process is sometimes difficult because they just see their little piece of, of of the of the pie, so to speak, and needing to understand, you know, again the end to end process. Yeah. That's a skill I learned when I was an auditor, and and really looking at, um, all right, we have maybe some problems in a process, but what's causing them? Looking at, you know, auditing uh, techniques as well as root cause analysis.
1: Okay, okay, um, so you, you talked there about. Companies leaving it till the last minute. Um, when is a good time to start financial close? Because some people might argue, you know, well, you know, our year end, you know, we're taking transactions right up until the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've got this project on, we've got Thanksgiving, you know, from experience, when, when is a good time to start? Or is it something that, you know, if you have good processes in place, it should be easy to do last minute?
0: Yep, that's right. If if you have some, you know, again, uh, good good um, process of, uh, documentation and and I guess the discipline, you can actually start gathering the information. So if you know you don't want to wait until December 31st to figure out, okay, I, my accounts haven't been reconciled in, in you know six months. Yes. Yeah. So there, there's probably you know a whole series of of uh, uh, you kind of, where are you in the close? And one of them is to make sure your accounts are all reconciled. And, and that means you just don't report a variance, but you look at um, what is causing that variance and what plans do I have in place to rectify it? And the other, the other key part is, if you're doing a post-close review, you can look at what problems did I face during the year? And how can I take a look at those now? You know, again, the beginning of December to make sure that they're not going to hit me at the end of the year. And, and there are other, you know, again, they're looking at all the feeders to the close. You can actually start looking at, okay, what's going on in accounts payable. Um, and, you know, and going back to our earlier uh, conversation, if we have e-invoicing, I'm probably not going to have to worry about accruals so much. Yeah. And it's almost like look at your processes and determine which one you really need to focus on and maybe have separate meetings with the, the stakeholders. So if payroll tends to be a mess and, and has the last minute uh, management adjustments, probably wanna start having even one-on-one conversation again with the, the management of, of the process and determine what they can start doing now to, to avoid again that last minute crunch.
1: Yeah, okay, okay. Um... And And I have a question around um, automation. Are, are you Are you seeing um, any kind of AI in financial close yet?
0: Uh, yes, actually, looking at AI for um, things like the transaction, you know because really kind of taking a step back. There are three major steps to the close. One is transaction accumulation. The second one is consolidation. Um, And um, the third piece, of course, is the final mile, which is reporting. And where AI comes into play is looking at um, trend analysis from, you know, one quarter or one month to another to start to highlight anomalies and there, again, algorithms that you can build with, you know, with bots that say, OK, here's my you know, looking at all three phases, transaction, accumulation, closing, and consolidation and final mile, particularly in transaction accumulation. You can go in and, and identify anomalies by using um, specific bots yeah. and they would highlight, OK, maybe um, even in, in payables, you know, maybe this vendor or supplier was paid. Uh, some huge amount that is, is totally out of their, their norm. And we should maybe take a look at that. And, you know, again, that's a a process you can start looking at now Uh, go back and look at payment information and procure to pay and see if there are anomalies and, and, start addressing them, you know, again, early December. And the other place bots can be used is looking at account balances so looking at you know transactions is one piece, but looking at account balances to also look at uh, fluctuations and determine if the some of the key general ledger balances are, are out of whack. Okay. And um, you know where you can a- actually start focusing um, now. Yeah. If you should have a zero balance um, cash account and you haven't you know for quite a few quarters or even a few months, you want to go back and take a look at that. Yeah. And that work used to be done all manually, you know. Again, on spreadsheets, it, it is again it's still done on spreadsheets at many companies, but having bots, you know, lined up um, that connect right to your ERP to do that analysis is really a, a, a very efficient and good best practice to look at. Okay, have you
1: have you seen have you seen any of this in practice yet, or is it still really early days?
0: It, it's early days. And you know what, what's interesting. If I look at you know the evolution of automation and digitizing processes, you know it started as okay, what can we outsource and what can we can what can we bring in um, into a shared service center, you know either one or or both. And now it's okay, what can we digitize? And the close and uh, process really kind of is still a, a stepchild. Uh, I'm very familiar with a lot of the automation tools uh, out there. And when I look at them, you know, they're, they're really very interesting. And, um, you know, again, the appeal is look at, um, you know, smaller companies that may not have the budget and uh, actually the use of, of technology for, you know, large ERP systems. But basically the closed process has sort of been a stepchild again in the evolution of automation because, It's also held, um, you know, so close to the vest, and there's a risk of, okay, we're going to close the books incorrectly. And if we're a public company, we're, you know, going to have a fine and not pass Sarbanes Oxley and so on and so forth. But as you start to peel back the onion of all financial processes, I think close is starting to really be under the spotlight. It's one of those those pain points that people don't want to talk about, but I think they're starting to. So that's why we're seeing some, some good automation in that area.
1: I mean, it's interesting because, you know, when I, to think about it, I would think the financial close is something that, you know, you'd, and I wanted to talk about it, you know, not just because it's the end of the year, but as you say, it's the opportunity to consolidate and also to figure out if there's any, you know, things like, as you say, duplicate payments, um, any issues in finance that we can address or rectify before we close the books. Um, and, you know, I suppose the idea, of course, that whatever comes out of that is what you're going to report to the markets and shareholders, right? So, so you know, having that, having this process kind of tight, I would think um, would be kind of something you want to do out of the blocks. And, and that, I suppose that kind of brings me on to the next part, you know, AI and and technology automating a lot of things but you know you've got a very strong audit background how efficient is the process at the moment do you see a lot of leakage Um, and is that leakage you know we talk about things like being material and we hope of course that things aren't that bad that they are a material weakness but you know do you see um, do you see a lot of leakage? Do you see a lot of weaknesses in the close? Um, is that a fairly standard thing that companies are just losing money because of poor practice?
0: Yeah, I, I think what's helped public companies tremendously is sarbanes Oxley. Right. And you know again, if we think about the the three pillars of the close, uh, they're actually uh, public companies are needing to report. The state of their internal controls for Sarbanes-Oxley 404, uh, along with the, their fiscal close. Yeah. So there's usually an internal controls team that, that does that, uh, separate from internal audit, because internal audit has to maintain the the independence. But I, I think that what companies do is, is you know, with lack of, of resources, you know, that's another big issue. They they just you know are in such a hurry to to get through um a, a closing process that they really don't go back and and make the improvements right. and I, I think that you know again it's really not the, the accounting standards are in place of course but um again how you get to the reporting process it is, is sometimes a a, a journey shall right. we say yeah. because a lot of the reports are, are done on spreadsheets and um they don't have you know reporting tools and I've heard that, okay, ERP systems aren't giving us the reports we need to see. And and again, it's a lot of uh, a resource challenge and right. also training, because people might have these wonderful tools at their fingertips, but they don't know how to use them. Okay. And, and that's, you know, again, a, a real challenge. And that's, and, standard,
1: that's fairly standard, like, because as you say, um, you take for granted that large organizations are using Oracle, SAP, whatever. Um, uh uh-huh and there's an understanding that with that level of investment um, you know the, at, at the very least the reporting coming out the other end should be you know should be pretty 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 accurate i would say but you what you're saying is that's often not the case and, and and it's people just don't know how to use it in order to get the report that management are asking for is that the issue
0: yeah i i think the the real issue is is if you you kind of peel back the onion on the clothes. And I had a chance to actually do that with a client, a very large uh, government consulting uh, company was just having a terrible time closing the books. Uh And the other factors to look at, of course, are the internal and external reporting process and also tying in things like, okay, how much does uh, budget analysis and forecast analysis impact your clothes? Yeah. And those are usually, of course, owned by the the business process owners. And you know again, if you look at what can I take out of the clothes, it's probably some of that analysis and and kind of divert it to another department. But if we go to this project that that I had the uh, uh, actually, it was a, a pleasure to to work with this organization because they wanted um, recommendations on, okay, let's go way back to transaction accumulation and see what we can do to, to make the process more efficient. So what we did was I determined that they had 300 cost centers, and it's one organization, and okay. it, and a lot of them weren't being used. And you still have to do reconciliations and and reviews of all these cost centers. Each one needs to have a budget and, and you know, forecast. So we actually consolidated and, ex- and alleviated a lot of these cost centers and then we looked at the process flow and we determined that there were a lot of last minute journal entries that could have been avoided. Yeah. So one step was cleaning up cost centers. And we actually looked at their chart of accounts, which, which are basically the building blocks uh, for the close and, and the financial architecture, if you will. So we determined that there were some cost centers that were redundant and some accounts that weren't being properly used. Right. And we were able to work with the organization and suggest that they have a team, you know, again, focused on the close, but for forecast and budgeting, they really needed to look at a rolling forecast, which is where you're always looking at your actuals. Yeah. And again, it, it's kind of chicken and the egg. If, if the close in, uh, process is sound and the reporting is sound, you know, your actuals and forecast results are going to be in good shape as well.
1: Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense.
0: Um,
1: let's, um, I wanted to move on because with your audit background, obviously, you know, we've talked about the opportunity of getting things right, but you've also had some experience with where things have gone really wrong. Um, and, and we talked before about WorldCom, um, and and what had happened there back back in the days that really led us to sarbanes otsley so you mm-hmm. you thought to your uh, to your time there you weren't involved in the wardcom scandal but you were you were there after the fact as it were
0: yes mhm yeah um it was it was very interesting i guess from our career perspective it it was um you know probably one of the best moves i ever made i was actually personally recruited by the new CEO that took over from Bernie Evers. Um, Michael Kapalis had been the CEO at Compaq prior to being the CIO. And he knew my background in internal controls and what I had done, of course, at Compaq. And I was recruited to come up to the Washington, D.C. area where WorldCom, a branch of WorldCom um, was located. Um, Their headquarters, of course, were in Clinton, Mississippi. But after the fraud and the scandal, they, they were pretty much all in Ashburn, Virginia. Okay. And what we had to do is, is kind of, you know, the work was just so um, uh, daunting, we had to just divide it all up. Right. And a couple of things were going on. Because of the bankruptcy, we had to report um, audit results to a court monitor.
1: Right.
0: Um, we also had to report audit results to an audit um, progress to our external auditors and then we had so many audit reports from internal audit we had to report those. So there's an awful lot of reporting on how things are being fixed. Right. The other thing that needed to be happen that needed to happen was we had to restate two years of financial statements. As as you know, the accounting was just wrong. Yeah. It, revenue was not reported properly and we decided that you know, rather than just clean house and fire everybody in finance, let's get them trained properly. Okay. So we brought in Deloitte and, and did all this really kind of basic accounting training so that that um, everyone was kind of on the same page for the right way to, to um, look at um, revenue accounting, of course, and least cost routing accounting, you know, in the, in the telco industry. And we went through um, probably about six months of that, Well, this was all happening. We had to rebuild corporate governance, and that was putting in things like, as I mentioned earlier, delegation of authority, segregation of of, uh, duties, uh, policies, and actually making sure that the uh, boards were set up correctly, um, the independent boards for uh, audit committees and also salary committees. And we also had to look at, okay, how do we fix the ethics? Uh, the lack of ethics and, and the old um, company. So a lot of that was embedded into the corporate governance change. And we worked a lot with um, my team and I worked a lot with the corporate secretary to make sure that all this progress was reported right to the board of directors. Yeah. So the only way we was, we got it all fixed was to have uh, the support of the, the board of directors as well as, the CEO and, and CFO, yeah. and it was it, they had they paid so much attention to this, of course, because we wanted to fix the company that they pretty much, meaning the the board, uh, received a report at every board meeting, which was quarterly, and the CEO, CFO, controller received status reports weekly on how everything was coming together. So as you can imagine, it took a fair amount of project management and um, a, an awful lot of time and quite a few PowerPoint slides to get everybody trained on what we were trying to do. Um, so communication was a huge thing, but I think yeah. having the support of, of the, of the C-suite as well as the board really helped it, it, all happen. And we got finished with everything in two years.
1: Wow. Okay. And, and it, it sounds like to me, um, there were really two things. There was deliberate, Deliberate fraud, but also sounds like we do have to go back to basics that maybe it was because things were so inefficient that fraud was able to happen. Would you agree with that statement?
0: Yeah, and another really big factor uh, there was coercion. Um, so, oh. the right, the controller and, and CFO were basically giving direction to some of the accountants to, to cook the books and, and do improper entries. Okay. So that was one major problem. And the other problem was there were so many legacy systems because the history of WorldCom was uh, that Bernie Ebers, the, the prior CEO, was buying all these, these um, telecom companies. And, of course, they came with their own system and their own management and their own um, business processes and doing consolidations and combining processes. It never happened. And we had really separate ways of, of looking at um, accounts payable even, and certainly um, revenue recognition. And with all these different systems, it pretty much was a quagmire of, of um, you know, again, trying to figure out what are the true numbers. Yeah. So because of that problem, a lot of the, the sins of the past, if you will, were able to be hidden because yeah. there was really no one good place where you could get a, a decent look at um, uh, financial results right. there, there were also no policies and procedures there were a couple of manuals hanging around but you know they hadn't seen a lot of day in years yeah. and um, so that's part of you know your conversation or your comment about the basics yeah. so the basics not being in place the lack of ethics and also the the uh, system integration problems were probably the three main factors for for the um, you know for the state of WorldCom.
1: I, I imagine because like you say I think without policies you talk about ethics but also what it does to culture. Um,
0: right. Mm-hmm. I imagine
1: by the time you go in there's a would you say that the because like you say you had a choice whether to fire everybody or work with them but I can imagine the culture then at that point was one based on fear. I suppose seeing people, you know, get indicted and so on. A lot of people that you were working with, was, was there fear or what, you know, what was the culture like when you were working with them over those two years?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it was really, um, a, kind of a tough situation because I actually started in beginning of June of, of, uh, 2003 and, Quite a few of the finance people that were involved in the, we call them, you know, shenanigans where basically the fraud were, were fired. Yeah. So walking into the the building, um, you know, of course, I didn't see that during my interview. It was pretty much a ghost town because there were so many empty offices because people were dismissed. Yeah. So there was a, you know, talking about fear, it was a, you know, again, am I going to be next, you know, particularly the, the folks that have been at. WorldCom, you know, MCI for a while. Of course, WorldCom became MCI. And then as we started fixing some of the things I I mentioned earlier, there was was sort of a, I guess, a renewal where the folks that had been there, you know, five, 10 years um, that weren't involved in the fraud um, wanted to get on the bandwagon. They wanted to attend all the meetings we had on as an example, the changes we needed for segregation of duties to make sure we had good system controls. And so we'd get all these, I used to call them meeting groupies that show up in these meetings and wanted to be part of the change. Right. And so we were able to enlist a, a lot of um, individuals to help us with the governance, the Sarbanes-Oxley effort, as well as building some stability and basics and building blocks back into the company.
1: Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. And um, of course, out of all of this, and at that time came uh, Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, there's been some talk recently about deregulation and about, you know, the pressure and the cost of, you know, dealing with socks. Um, I would guess that you're probably an advocate for socks. Do you, think, do you think the opposite, that we need more of it? Or do you think there's too much? What's your current stance on, on Sarbanes-Oxley?
0: Yeah, Sarbanes-Oxley was actually implemented in July of um, of, uh, 2002. And companies that had good controls and were paying attention to uh, sound business practices and were looking at controls at least quarterly were in pretty good shape for Sarbanes-Oxley. And going back to the early days, the first like five years or so of sarbanes um, I, I would say that large companies spent as much as $100 million to bring in external auditors and all these different teams to help them analyze uh, their controls. Throwing and asset, yeah, uh, yeah. And as an example, um, at WorldCom, uh, we tested over 10,000 controls. And that includes, you know, documenting and testing manually on spreadsheets a lot of that was due to all the different systems we had. We had, um, you know, a a plethora of controls because we had so many different disparate systems. And I believe with Sarbanes-Oxley, if you are looking at internal controls, again, on a a self-assessment manner, on a regular basis, you're actually paying attention to results and correcting results. Sarbanes-Oxley shouldn't even be a worry. It should just be another step in the process. And if you're looking at um, you know again, good risk analysis and you're looking at the right controls, then again, you're going to be in good shape at the at the end of the year. Yeah. and what i've I've actually been looking at is how do we focus on risk based controls rather than just documenting an internal control for the sake of the control? Yeah. you've got to really look at dissecting um, the whole process to make sure that, the controls are are properly addressing the risk. So in my internal controls toolkit, I've got all these different um, matrices that that present the control and the risk that's being mitigated. I've also done a lot of work with NACHA, the Electronic Payment Association, and we did a a payment um, risk management manual um, that is an internal manual for NACHA and their clients and we kind of turned it around. We said, okay, let's look at all the risks within the payment process, yeah. and then let's identify all the controls. So, we sort of flipped it a little bit, and we also took a bigger picture look at where is the biggest risk in, in the payment process. Yeah. But I think doing things like that, and also really making sure that your internal controls process is in good shape shouldn't even be an issue, and um, I think that You know, 404 is is a good process. Digital was doing something called balance sheet review, where we looked at the account reconciliations that I mentioned earlier. Also, the state of an organization's internal controls. And when HP bought bought, or Compaq bought DAC, and of course, um, HP bought Compaq, those processes still stayed in place. Right. And um, you know, again, I, I think that was being that was done in the late '80s even, and um, so Sarbanes Oxley wasn't you know a big deal. You know, I think just doing the new reporting and the roll-ups and everything else, uh, you know, just taking a different look at the process. Yeah. But I think Sarbanes Oxley is a good thing. Um, I do think that when the the law first came out, we didn't have any any guidance. And so we use the COSO framework, Council of Supporting Organizations of the Treadway yeah. Commission. We use the old COSO framework as, as as a basis. Well, you know, that's been around since the late 80s, so it's nothing new. Yeah. And um, I think what Sarbanes-Oxley or what the regulators can do is, is, is come up with some standards right. um, and come up with, you know, best practices or share those on how, you know, companies should be looking at their internal controls.
1: Yeah. Is that because um, uh, you know we, we started off talking about the fast close toolkit,
0: but you, you, as you say, you have the internal controls
1: toolkit. Was, is that why you wrote that book? Was to, try yes. to assemble something from yep. the standard?
0: Yeah. So I wanted to communicate the standards of internal controls that are available. Um, you know, again, not just for financial processes, but for security and um, information technology. Um, the um, Employee Health and Safety Organization as examples of ethics. How do you how do you determine if your ethics are sound? What can you look at? And there is um, a series of internal controls called entity level controls, which look at the efficiency or, or the effectiveness of ethics program and, and board committees and, and um, things like that. Yeah. And what I wanted to do is, is share the, um, the content that that I developed over the years, and, and certainly had available for uh, a general audience. And the Accounting uh, Today publication actually gave me a pretty good review and said it was a good uh, desk manual for for smaller companies. Yeah. W- which is which is um, absolutely true. You can use the internal controls toolkit to actually run your your entire company. And Use it to either enhance your controls or uh, implement some some new uh, practices. Yeah,
1: and that the internal controls toolkit that book uh, is available. That came out in June, July. Of yes, that was that
0: was actually shipped in the July timeframe.
1: Okay, and the fast close toolkit you've just released is that right?
0: Yes. Yep. Yeah. So I just talked to my editor, and it was actually starting to ship last week. So right. Okay.
1: And um, we've talked before, you've got a few more on the way coming 2020. Um, and you've done all of these through Wiley, right? Published yes, through
0: Wiley. yep, through Wiley F&A. Mm-hmm.
1: Ah. So uh, if I'm right, you've got the AP toolkit and the controllers toolkit
0: to come? Yes, the controllers toolkit is due, the um, first draft is due in May, uh, actually May 15th. And the AP toolkit is due in, in late um, August of 2020. Okay. Now that's when I get them the first draft and the process is that we go back and forth with editing. Um, I actually get a link to the editing tool right. where I can see, it's really a pretty, pretty, pretty swift right. yeah. process. I get to look at layouts as well as um, you know, how the, the, just the raw text looks. And looking at the layouts is is really important because you can see if you've got tables going the wrong way or or things that just don't appear correctly on a page. Editing process usually takes a couple of weeks and um, then of course you go back and forth quite a few times with questions and and, um, suggestions and I actually got the internal controls toolkit completed in January, end of January, uh, 2019. Yeah. And again, it's about six months, um, to get everything published.
1: Excellent. So, um, so a good series to come. Um, I'll post a link, um, to both of those current books. Um, and, um, if people are interested in learning more or, uh, learning more about working with you, where can they find you? What's the best way to get hold of you?
0: Yes, I, I do have a website. That's in process of being updated, and the website is, is Doxy Incorporated, D-O-X-E-Y Inc. And um, you know .com, and they can actually get a look at um, some of the things that that um, the services that I provide, uh, educational services as well as consulting. Okay. And um, they can certainly reach out to me directly. Um, and um, my website actually connects right to an email. but um, they can actually reach out to me directly if they'd like.
1: Right. Okay. So if if I'm in need of um, reviewing internal controls, financial close, AP AP automation, that kind of thing, um, then I should come and talk to you, obviously.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Be glad glad to help.
1: And it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, You know, this is the first... Podcast, and I really wanted to start at the end, as we are at the end of 2019.
0: Yeah, and I, I will mention um, for the, any Oracle customers, I, I have a lot of postings out on Customer Connect, uh, really that, that um, summarize a lot of the, the key points we talked about today. Yeah. and I really thank Lewis for the opportunity to do this podcast, and look forward to doing some more in the future.